Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're walking along and you fall into a pit, what would you do? Well, that really depends, doesn't it, on how deep the pit is. If you stumble into a pit about 30 centimeters deep, then most likely you will just step out of it. If you stumble into a pit one meter deep, so I guess about this deep, then you would probably be able to clamber out. You'd be a bit dirty. Uh, you'd be a bit disheveled, and you'd be a little bit embarrassed, but you'd be able to get out. But what if the pit is way deeper? We once lived in a house where we had a well, and it was a hand-dug well, and it was 50 meters deep. It's over 160 feet deep. And I remember taking a stone and dropping it, and waiting a very long time to hear it splash in the water at the bottom. I didn't feel comfortable with such a deep well on my property, so I had a, a fence put around it and a lid with a lock. I didn't want to lose one of the kids down there. If you fall into a 160-foot pit, you're going to have some broken bones probably. You're going to be dazed and concussed, and there's no way that you're going to be able to get out by yourself. Now, if you step into a 30-centimeter deep pit and somebody lends you a hand to step out of it, you'll say thank you. If you fall into a one-meter deep pit, you'll be even more thankful. And if you've fallen into a pit so deep that it takes a lot of work and time and energy to get you out of it, you will be eternally grateful. Now, Lord's Day 4, as we come to the end of the section of the Heidelberg Catechism on sin and misery, continues to describe how bad our situation is, how deep the fall is, how we have fallen deep into a pit of our own making which we cannot get out of. Lord's Day 3 described to us the great heights of our creation, that we were created in the image of God. And then Lord's Day 3 went on to describe the great depth to which we plunged, the corruption into which we plunged ourselves, unable to do any good, inclined to do all evil. And there's no way out of it for us. Our only hope is a miraculous work of God raising us up from the pit of sin and death, regenerating us, giving us new life. That's our only hope. And so Lord's Day 4 explores a little bit more that fallen state into which we have plunged ourselves. The more we understand how bad the situation is, the more we can praise and worship the Lord Jesus for saving us from it. And that's why we spend so much time on this sin and misery business. Because if we think sin is a minor inconvenience that we step into and we just step out of with maybe Jesus giving us a bit of a hand, then we're just going to say a polite thank you to Jesus. But if we understand the profound horrors of the depth of the total depravity and misery of our fallen state, then we will be impelled to eternal gratitude and praise for the greatness and the glory of the miracle of salvation. And so this afternoon again, we 
spend time meditating upon then our sin and misery. Now, question answer nine of our Lord's Day begins by basically asking this question, is it fair? Is it fair? God, in his law, requires perfect love. We, in our fallen state, can only perfectly hate. Is it fair for God to demand something way up here that is way above our ability because we're way down here? Is it fair? I mean, we can acknowledge that we're pretty low. We can acknowledge that we can't love and do good. We can acknowledge that by nature, as fallen sinners, we're slaves of sin and corruption. But is it really fair of God to expect us to love when by nature he knows that all we can do is hate? And the answer to that is that we were created to love. We were made to reflect the very character of God who is love. God, the creator, expects us to do what he created us to do. He hasn't changed. We have. We let the devil push us around. We let the devil lead us by the nose. We deliberately chose to smash the image of God into little pieces. And we robbed ourselves, Adam, robbed himself and all his descendants of these glorious gifts. We had everything we needed to worship God, to love God, to love our neighbor. You notice what we confess from the scriptures that Adam robbed himself and all his descendants. That's hard to wrap our minds around because we think, well, Adam lived a long time ago and if he happened with Eve to eat something that God forbade, why should that be my problem? But the Bible makes it clear that this is not just Adam's problem, but it's ours. Because what Adam did didn't just affect him, it affected humanity, it affected human nature. Adam's sin introduced a twistedness into the very nature of man. You know, if Adam had cut off his arm and he had a child with Eve, the child would not be born missing an arm. But what Adam did wasn't just a change to his body. What Adam did didn't just cause a change to his mind, but what Adam did caused a change to his nature. And it is nature which is passed on from parents to children, from generation to generation, so that the scripture says, Romans 5:12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because when a sinner has a child with a sinner, then the child of that pair of sinners is also of the same nature a sinner. And so the scripture continues, Romans 5, 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And verse 19 of Romans 5, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so God hasn't changed. We have changed. And God simply sets before us what has always been set before us. I made you, I created you to love. And I am not going to lower my expectations. And so we can't blame God for our problem. We can't 
try to escape the consequences of our sin by saying God's not fair. And then we go on to question answer 10. And behind this question is kind of a, a hint. Can't God just let this go? I mean, we do it all the time with our kids, right? The kids do something sometimes. It's technically not right. Maybe they've really, really done something naughty. But we kind of look the other way. We kind of, we kind of forget about it. We let it go. And we can do that with our kids because we are sinners. And sometimes their disobedience makes us smile because we recognize ourselves in it. And we can't bring ourselves to discipline a naughty child when we think they're cute. But that's because we are sinners too. And we recognize ourselves in the sin of our children. But God can't do that. God can't see himself in our sin. God can't look through his fingers like Santa Claus with a twinkle in his eyes and, and say, well, let's pretend that didn't happen. But God is holy, and sin makes God angry because sin is something which does not belong in his good creation. It's like a gardener who wakes up one morning and sees big, Nasty weeds and thorns crowding out all the flowers and vegetables. Overnight, they've crowded them out, those flowers and vegetables that the garden has spent countless hours cultivating all summer. It's like a mother who has just spent an hour polishing the kitchen floor till it shines and then someone clumps all over it with big, muddy, dirty boots. And the, the reaction in both of those cases is, that is not right. That's not supposed to be like that. This cannot be. That is unacceptable. This must be dealt with. Away with those weeds. Away with the filth. They have no place here. That's a very, very small picture of how sin offends God. It has no place. Now, these are uncomfortable truths, and because they're uncomfortable truths, the church often neglects to preach them, because who wants to come on a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon and hear an earful about how God is angry? But we have to listen to what God tells us about himself. We can't just pick and choose. And so you turn in your Bible to Psalm 5, and you see verses 4 to 6 where the psalmist says, Psalm 5 verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It's not just sin that God has a problem with, but sinners. Because sinners is where sins come from. And God will not have it. There is no room in his creation for sin or sinners. You know, people often like to say, hate the sin, love the sinner. That only works in Christ. That only works in the church. That only works for those who are redeemed, whose sins have been paid for. And when God's children fall, we love the sinner and we hate the sin. And God loves that sinner because that sinner's sin is paid for in the blood of Christ. It doesn't work in general. The Bible doesn't say that God loves the sinner in general. 
It's the contrary. We just read it. Do you see it right there in Psalm 5? The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Sometimes the God of the Scriptures is a little different than the God we make up in our own minds. Look at Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation or wrath or anger every day. The God of the Scriptures is not the God of modern therapeutic deism, the God that we've made up who is such a sweet person who can never be offended, who is always happy with us no matter what we do, who understands that we're not perfect, that our lives are messy, and he has no problem with that. He can look the other way. That's not the God of the Scriptures. He is a God who is angry, who is, uh, has a righteous and just anger. And then turn in your, in your Bible, if you can, to Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. It's always a little hard to find the, the minor prophets when you're in a hurry. So Nahum, if, you're, if you've got a, a pew Bible, that's 782. And Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So he's slow to anger, but when he gets angry, he judges his enemies. He judges the sinner. And then think of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I mean, we can look at these texts and say, well, they're in the Old Testament. Well, that doesn't make any difference because the God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. But if you want a New Testament text, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where the apostle writes this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We live in a world which is under the act of wrath of God. But God is already sending temporal judgments which are a taste of the eternal judgment which waits all those who die unrepentant in their sin. And so God is angry with sin and with sinners. And he's angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. And we may ask, children may ask, well, what's the difference between original sins and actual sins? Our original sins, very unique sins that only I've committed. I've become very imaginative and discovered a sin that nobody else has, has done. Is that an original sin? Well, no, that's not the meaning. The original sin is the first sin, the sin of origin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. And it is a sin in which we all share. And actual sins are the sins which come forth from that corrupted nature that we have because of original sin. Actual sins are the sins which flow from us day by day because we are sinners. And God is angry with both of those, with both categories. And God is a just judge. And in this life already, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5. 
for the believer, storms and disasters and sicknesses and diseases are afflictions which God sends to discipline us, to mold us, to prepare us for glory. They're not punishments. Jesus took the punishment. But for the unbeliever, all the catastrophes and diseases and hardships of this world are just little tastes of what awaits them in eternity if they do not repent. And so in this life already, the unbeliever tastes the beginnings of hell. And in the life to come, says the scripture, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And what awaits the sinner at the judgment? Well, the Bible tells us, and we confess that there at the end of question answer 10. God's made it very clear what the rules are. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't keep the law, you're under the curse. If you don't love perfectly God and your neighbor at every moment, every day of your life, with not one failure, not one moment of slipping up, if you are not perfectly loving God and your neighbor, then what awaits you is curse. What does that mean? It means that you are considered a weed in God's garden. You will be ripped up and thrown into the fire. It means that you are a filthy mark on the clean floor of God's kingdom and you will be scrubbed off and destroyed. Because if you do not, if I do not love perfectly, there's no room for us in the gracious presence of God. We are not welcome. We are marked for destruction. Now this sounds very bad and it is. And so in question answer 11, the questioner in the catechism tries to find a way out of this very, very deep hole into which we've plunged ourselves and says, well, look, all the other things I've tried haven't worked. What about this one? What about God's mercy? Is that a way out of this pit? Is that a way out of the depth? Isn't God also merciful? I mean, we know he is, right? Can't he just put the judgment aside and then can't he give us the mercy instead? And the answer of the scriptures is clear and the church confesses it following the scriptures. Yes, God is merciful, but he can't stop being God. He is infinitely merciful. He cannot be merciful at the expense of his infinite holiness and his infinite righteousness and his infinite justice. Those two things are true at the same time. He is infinitely merciful and infinitely just. And there's no way around it. And the justice of a holy God must be satisfied. The greatest crime in the history of the universe has occurred. We have committed sin against the most high majesty of God. We have smashed the glorious image of God into a million pieces, into an ugly mess, and there is hell to pay. There's no way around it. Sin must be punished with the most severe that is everlasting punishment of body and soul. What does the Bible say? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What does the Bible say in another place? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, least of these you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. 
That's the situation at the bottom of the pit where sin and misery leaves us. These are the truths of God's word. What are we supposed to do with them? What is the takeaway? I want to mention four things. First of all, when we consider this teaching of Scripture, then God's, we come to understand that God's holiness and God's glory are far greater than we can imagine. Because sin, punishment for sin against His holy majesty requires eternal punishment. And we can't process that. Because for us, that would be a wicked thing. If somebody offends us and we require an eternal, never-ending punishment, then people can rightly say, who do you think you are? You have no right to demand that. But we're this big. And God is infinitely great. And if we have trouble with the doctrine of eternal punishment, if we have trouble with the doctrine of hell, it is because we have trouble with our conception of God. If we have a cramped and stunted and far too small concept of God, then we will not be able to swallow the biblical teaching about hell. And so if you have trouble, which a lot of us do, because it's frightening to think that God's righteous judgment will continue forever. It's horrifying. It's, it, it, it invokes terror in our hearts. Then know that God is teaching us something about how high and holy and infinitely great he is. We don't know even the smallest beginning of his great holiness and majesty yet. We've got a long way to go. That's the first takeaway. The second one is this. When we understand how deeply we've fallen, when we understand how deep the pit is, that there's no way out, that we're in the bottom of a pit from which we cannot escape, we can't even begin to try to escape, there's no use. When we understand that, then we will laugh at legalism. We will think it's funny when Christians say, well, if you just check off these boxes and do these things, then God will like you and will accept you. We will mock it. We will scorn it. We will hate legalism, and we will not accept it off the pulpit or anywhere else in the life of the church. We will seek Christ and Christ alone because knowing the depth of our sin and misery drives us to seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. And out of the depth, we cry to God in Christ, there is no other hope. And brother and sister, that's exactly where God wants us. And the third takeaway is this. When we understand what Jesus went through, what he suffered to save us, that he went into the pit of hell itself, that our Lord Jesus experienced the infinite horrors of eternal hell for each one of us that he has saved. When we understand what Jesus did to take us out of the pit, then we will want to worship him and praise him and love him and dedicate our lives to him 
brother and sister, do you want to worship Christ more? Then take time to meditate on hell. Take the time to meditate on the hell that you deserved, but he experienced in your place. And then finally, the fourth takeaway is this. When we understand that unrepentant sinners, whether it's in our family, our neighbors, the people we work with or go to school with, when we understand that unrepentant sinners are rushing toward eternal judgment, this will incite us to pray more fervently and to work more deliberately for the spread of the gospel in our community and around the world where there is apathy with respect to evangelism and mission. There is a, that's a sign of a low view of sin, a low view of God's holiness and justice, a low view of the glory and the grace of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. If you're able to just live in this world with family, loved ones, friends, neighbors, colleagues at work and school, and you're quite fine with you having your little thing with Jesus on Sundays, and you're not bothering to pray for the people that are rushing towards hell, then you do not understand the gospel. The judge is coming. Are you ready? The judge is coming. What is the him say that we're about to sing day of judgment day of wonders hark the trumpet's awesome sound louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round how the summons will the sinner's heart confound see the judge our nature wearing clothed in majesty divine you who long for his appearing then shall say this god is mine gracious savior own me in that day as thine. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the evil doers shaken by his looks, prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? Now, in this hymn that we're about to sing, and in these first Lord's days of the Catechism, we confess the judgment of God upon our sin and our misery. But we do it in the context of Lord's Day 1. That's important. We don't wallow around in our sin and misery by itself with no context. We've, we've confessed Lord's Day 1 already that I am not my own, that I belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, that He has set me free from the power, all the power of the devil, that he by his Holy Spirit has changed my very nature, assuring me of eternal life and making me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And because we confess Lord's Day 1, we can sing that final stanza of hymn 70. But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near you, blessed See the kingdom I bestow, you forever shall my love and glory know. Amen.